Rising Giants Network. This kind of idea that you have to fight to preserve um, white identity in European culture before it, it, it disappears, before it gets eroded through immigration and multiculturalism and pluralism and diversity. What started to happen, particularly post 2016 or so with the rise of Trump and far-right politics uh, in Europe was um, a lot of these fringe groups started to feel uh, like they had a representative in the mainstream. I do think um, there is this broader thing happening with um, white culture that they that a lot of uh, or you know some young people and, and and some old people now who are drawn to movements like QAnon and um, for even white supremacist groups. Um, feel like something about them is under attack, white culture is under attack. What I can say is that it is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. New Zealand has an international reputation as a peaceful and tranquil place, and this is something many Kiwis pride themselves on. But the terrorist attack on March 15th, 2019, called into question the truth of all of this. In the initial aftermath of the attacks, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern proclaimed that this is not us, a call that was echoed by many throughout the country. But many rubbished this outlook, pointing out that extremism and racism were well and truly alive in New Zealand. I'm Ashley Stewart, and from the Rising Giants Network, this is Our Darkest Day, examining the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks. I've spent the last two years speaking with some of the people most affected by this horrific crime. And in this podcast, I have the privilege of introducing you to them. This is the story of that day and the aftermath, told in their words. This podcast isn't for sensitive ears or for children. If it's starting to feel like too much, just switch it off. In the last episode, we delved into the background of Jana Izzat, who lost her 35-year-old son in Al Noor, and Adib Sami, who was shot twice protecting his son. They took us from their birthplaces in Iraq to Christchurch, explaining exactly why so many immigrants choose New Zealand as a safe place to start a new life. In this episode, we'll take another deep dive, this time into the notion of white supremacy and extremism. Episode 4, The Terrorist. In the days following the attacks, Prime Minister Ardern announced that she would never utter the terrorist's name so as not to provide him with the notoriety that he sought. The New Zealand media agreed. That's why I'm not using it either. As the story unfolded, we discovered that the gunman was Australian and had preached radical and white nationalist ideologies online, that references to the Crusades and recent terror attacks were written on his weapons. He'd also marked them with various symbols, including those of the Nazi SS. Just minutes before the attack, he'd sent a copy of his so-called Manifesto, a 74-page document he had entitled The Great Replacement, to an extremist website, to the government and to the media. We all know that saying about how those that cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In this episode, we'll hear about the ways the New Zealand public grappled with ideas about their identity following on from the attack, 
and about the ways the terrorist came to be radicalised in the first place. I spoke to Amanath Amarasingam, a well-known expert on terrorism and political violence and an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, who started by telling me that even just answering the question, what is far-right extremism, is actually pretty complicated. Because I think there are, especially today, a whole host of different um, ideological movements that are grouped under what we call far-right extremism. So that could be your typical white supremacist movement, um, your white separatist movements, um, or kind of more mundane white nationalist movements who call for things like, quote-unquote, white civil rights, etc. Um, and then uh, this, broader tra- this broader trajectory of, you know, uh, kind of very intense uh, affiliation and attachment to white identity in Western culture um, has also seeped its way into um, other kinds of movements as well, from, you know, QAnon to incel movements to uh, a whole host of more fringe um, ideas as well. And so in general, I think you can define it as um, a kind of movement that sees uh, a very close attachment to preserving Western culture, uh, fighting for Western culture, preserving white identity, um, and, and sees white identity and Western culture largely under threat from forces uh, within and, and, and from the outside. Um, and so uh, this, this kind of idea that you have to fight to preserve um, white identity and European culture before it, it disappears, before it gets eroded through immigration and multiculturalism and pluralism and diversity. According to the summary of facts from his sentencing, The Christchurch terrorist grew up in Grafton, in New South Wales and Australia, the youngest of two siblings, before taking off on a seven-year trip around the world when his father died of cancer, aged 49. He travelled through Asia and Europe and arrived in New Zealand in August 2017 and settled in Dunedin. A month later, he applied for a firearms licence, the kind generally used by hunters. Almost immediately, he set about visiting gun stores online and in person to assemble weapons. He bought high-powered firearms, magazines, and more than 7,000 rounds of ammunition. He modified the triggers of some of the guns so he could fire them more quickly. The ease at which he got all of these weapons so easily was one of the main reasons the gun laws changed just six days after the attacks. The next year, he visited Pakistan, North Korea and Austria. All the while, he spent countless hours researching New Zealand Muslim sites of worship on the internet. He got detailed plans of mosques online, which showed him layouts and interior images. He pinpointed prayer times to ensure the mosque would be at its busiest when he attacked. Back to Amanath, who explains exactly how the internet has made this kind of stuff easier. There are several things happening um, in the contemporary world which are worrisome. Uh, on, on the one hand, you have a kind of mainstreaming of these ideas, which uh, is fairly recent. Uh, you know, most of these ideas used to be subcultural, used to be fringe, uh, used to be hidden. Um, and and uh, most of these organizations and social movements, um, you know, weren't easily uh, approachable, weren't out in the open. Uh, that started to change with the advent of social media uh, and mainstream social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, um, et cetera. But what what started to happen, particularly post-2016 or so with the rise of Trump and far-right politics uh, in Europe, was um, a lot of these fringe groups started to feel uh, like they had a representative in the mainstream, right? 
The second thing that happened is uh, the kind of transnational connections started to form. And this was also partly due to social media platforms as well, in that it wasn't strictly that you were part of a Canadian uh, far-right group or a European far-right group or an Australian far-right group. Now you were all talking to each other. You were uh, sharing ideas, sharing resources, sharing strategies. And so you may not be able to say that in your neighborhood or at your workplace or, you know, uh, in your family, but now you can enter this online community and um, have a very open conversation with like-minded people all over the world. On January 8th, 2019, two months before the attacks, the terrorist travelled to Christchurch to scope out his main target, Alnor Mosque. He parked up opposite the mosque and sat, flying a drone over the building, meticulously filming what he saw. From there, he planned his attack down to every detail. He ensured he would arrive just as the mosque was at its busiest, in the midst of Juma prayers, the most important of the week. He calculated how much time he would need to carry out the attack and travel to his second target, the Linwood Islamic Center. The day of the attacks, March 15th, he drove from Dunedin to Christchurch, a journey of about 360 kilometers, which generally takes about four and a half hours. His car was brimming with firearms, ammunition preloaded into magazines, and modified petrol containers intended to help him burn down the mosques after the attacks. He sent out his manifesto at 1.28 p.m. Three minutes later, he texted his family to tell them his intentions and instructed them on how to deal with the media and the police in the aftermath. One minute later, he turned on the GoPro that was attached to his police-style helmet, which began recording and sending a live feed to Facebook. He had also attached a speaker, which he used to blast loud music. Dressed in military-style camouflage clothing and a full tactical vest, with more than seven fully loaded magazines and a scabbard holding a bayonet-style knife in his pockets, he left the car and approached Alnor Mosque. There were 190 people inside. We know the rest. 44 people died at Alnor Mosque. Seven people died at Linwood Islamic Center. A further 40 people were injured. When he was arrested, the terrorist immediately told police that he'd carried out a terror attack and that he wanted to kill as many people as possible before burning down his targets. He had wanted to kill more people than he did. This is how Amanath explains the terrorists' intentions. Um, I think for some of these attackers, they want to be seen um, as kind of messengers in a way, right? So they want to be the ones who woke up the masses. They they themselves know that individually they're not going to do anything, but they want to spark the movement. They want to spark um, large-scale uh, societal shifts and large-scale societal destruction um, to bring about their end goal of a white ethnostate um, uh, that will occur after this you know, so-called imaginary race war that they're all planning for. Um, and so so I think a lot of these attackers want to be that spark, that initial spark that uh, awakens a sleeping white community uh, to the true threat because uh, they believe that things like pluralism and multiculturalism and multiculturalism policy are actually keeping white people asleep to their to their true plight, that their culture and their identities and their um, belief systems are being slowly eroded. Of course, then they will fight back and they will see him um, as the hero, right, who kind of brought brought awareness to the masses and brought awareness to the public. Um, and so I do think they live in a kind of symbolic um, 
a symbolic worldview where they, they are cosmic warriors in a war that most people don't even know is happening. One of the purposes of an attack like this is to add to the division the attacker perceives to be there. So it would have come as a blow to the terrorist when, in the days and weeks following the attack, the Muslim community, not only in New Zealand but around the world, came together to instead promote a message of unity and love. I would hope that he sees himself as a failure, that um, that his kind of attempt to wake up the masses uh, was a fantasy, and that he, you know, that that he that he was uh, misguided from the very beginning. But it's difficult to know how these people react to these things because I think they're supremely capable of rationalizing their actions and the responses um, in a way that makes them continue to be seen to themselves, at least, as this kind of holy warrior. Something that was said a lot by authorities and the media following the attack was that the Christchurch gunman was a lone wolf who seemingly acted alone. But Amanath thinks there's a fundamental problem with this description. This is an ongoing debate um, in the terrorism field, I think. is that, and, and most people tend to agree now that there is no real pure lone wolf attacker. You know, there is no kind of Unabomber type of scenario anymore. You don't see that as much. Even a lot of these attackers that we call lone wolf are, as you say, plugged into um, broader ideological worldviews. They're, you know, in chat rooms, in uh, groups and channels, in the online space. They're talking to people. Um, and so there is, uh, I think, uh, you know, d- different kinds of connections and networking that we talk about now. So directed attacks are um, much like what you saw with the Paris attacks. You know, people trained by the Islamic State Central and sent out and dispatched to actually do the attack. Networked are people who are kind of loosely connected, uh, may have shared resources, may have uh, funded each other, uh, things like that. But they're definitely connected and communicating. Um, and then the third is this kind of inspired uh, cohort who may not actually be in touch with any actual person, um, but are in, in the process of consuming propaganda and, and consuming online content or offline content um, and, and may have may kind of answer the call, uh, so to speak, that, that comes out from some of these networks and, and plot an attack on their own. Um, and so it, 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 there's, when we talk about lone wolf now, we, we kind of uh, make it a bit more of a complex story because the, the kind of pure lone wolf um, is, is much more rare these days than typically imagined, I think. So why did a 28-year-old Australian man target a town in New Zealand, a country in the Pacific of just 5 million, far removed from the rest of the world? This was a major question after the attacks and a major talking point. People were surprised and horrified it had happened in New Zealand. But Amanath explains that this shouldn't necessarily have come as such a shock. And it's not really the fault of the you know everyday people because they're not uh, typically swimming uh, in this kind of propaganda on a daily basis, and so uh, most people are going about their you know going about their day, taking their kids to school, going to work, and and they don't see their local contacts and their local neighborhoods as um, targets per se, right? But I think what what's important to understand about um, some of these kinds of attacks is they do want to spread that impression, right? They want to spread the impression that um, everything is fair game, that everywhere is fair game, um, that you have people amongst you um, who are part of this movement. And so, the, so the, the point of those kinds of attacks in random places is to actually spread fear and to cause division and, sh- and, and, and cause social polarization 
um, in, in these kind of idyllic communities that maybe haven't experienced it out in the open. The Islamic State, when it launched its attacks, for example, was quite open about this, right? They said, you know, if you live in a random city, you know, get a knife, get a gun, rent a, a, a U-Haul and, and go on an attacking spree so that you can communicate to people that um, even though they're living in some small town somewhere, they're still, uh, they're still our enemy, right? And, and so it was a deliberate kind of propaganda strategy and deliberate um, strategy to cause fear. The role of social media was also called into question after the attacks, mostly of Facebook, which was the platform that allowed the shooter to live stream his attacks for 17 minutes before it was taken down. That culminated in the Christchurch Call, a political summit initiated by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern that took place in Paris in May 2019, just a couple of months later. Facebook eventually announced changes to its live stream protocols, and more recently, other social media sites have cracked down on misinformation and hate speech. Like when Trump was finally banned from a bunch of them after inciting protests at the US Capitol in 2021. But as Amanath says, that has led to the creation of underground sites like Parler, which US Capitol protesters used to organize their Washington siege. I think... You know, 20, 30 years ago, it was it was a very kind of boots on the ground movement. You know, uh, of course, these groups had, that had radio stations and and were putting out VHS tapes and putting up flyers in their neighborhood, and and so the recruitment strategies I think are fairly similar overall. Um, but the scope and scale and the speed at which you can get your message out, the speed at which you can react in real time to events that are happening in the world, like the Trump election or the um, uh, attacks in Christchurch or attacks elsewhere, you know, Islamic State attacks um, in France and Belgium. The the speed at which you can incorporate real-time events into your ideology and use them uh, as kind of uh, emotional tools to recruit and get the message out there um, has fundamentally changed and, and has increased uh, exponentially. Um, but the online space, I think, has also changed, right? Because in the last couple of years, um, in the far right space, at least, you could you could get your message out there without a whole lot of interference from social media companies. You were able to post content. You were able to have Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts and Facebook pages with hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, and there was no real uh, takedown or pushing or deplatforming that was happening in the far right space until fairly recently. Um, but once that started to happen, particularly after Charlottesville attack, uh, particularly after Christchurch and the Christchurch call. Um, it is much harder now to find a lot of far-right activists um, or open recruitment in, in mainstream platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. What they've done now is, of course, moved to more clandestine or, or secretive platforms like uh, private, channels on, private channels and groups on Telegram. But the kind of ability to speak to the mainstream, ability to recruit new people, um, I think gets reduced. But at the same time, the kind of in-group identity gets further and further solidified in these more closed platforms as well. And so um, it's, a, it's a give and take. It's, it's obviously a good thing to have neo-Nazi propaganda off mainstream platforms like Twitter and Facebook so that everyday people aren't um, coming across them or stumbling across them when they're doing their uh, regular news scrolling and so on. Um, but it, it does become a little harder to track when, when they you know, disappear into these kind of dark corners of the internet. So how do we root out these fringe members of society so hell-bent on chaos and hurt? What responsibility does society have? 
to eradicate these ideologies? What responsibility does the media have? These are incredibly difficult questions, Amanath says, but there are small changes to the way we operate that can have an effect. There's uh, a few different approaches which I've I've kind of pushed in the past. Um, one of them, I, I, I do think we need to listen more. I think the same way we listen to, um, uh, you know, uh, the Hindu community or the Muslim community or the Buddhist community, um, you know, uh, other communities in different uh, who are undergoing similar marginalization. Um, we need to, I think, understand why certain white people, uh, young and old, believe that something about them is under attack. It may be a complete fantasy. It may be that they're misguided, they're, they're misinformed, that they uh, don't really know what they're talking about. But that's kind of beside the point, right? Is it the fact that, um, as as um, as old sociologists used to argue, if you believe something to be the case, that, that it, it's real to you, and that's enough, right? And and the, and people will behave and act according to what they believe is real. Um, and secondly, but related to the first, um, is I think a lot of former extremists that have started to come out of the woodwork um, have a lot of insight that we can learn from uh, in, in terms of what brought them into the movement. And so I think um, having a kind of broader, mature conversation um, is, is what's necessary. Uh, it didn't help that we did have a president for four years who... Um, you know, was the conspiratorial uh, conspiracist in chief who was pushing uh, all kinds of um, crazy ideas and who uh, a lot of the far right felt like was their voice, you know, their voice in, in power. I mean, even um, the Christchurch attacker mentioned Trump as a kind of symbol for ethnic identity um, and, and, and so on. And so I think... Uh, Hopefully, moving forward under a Biden administration, under um, you know a, a different kind of outlook, uh, that, that some of these movements um, won't, won't be so attractive. Um, but but we'll have to see. But I, I do think um, there is this broader thing happening with um, white culture that they that a lot of uh, or you know some young people and, and and some old people now who are drawn to movements like QAnon and um for even white supremacist groups um feel like something about them is under attack white culture is under attack western culture is under attack that they're made to feel ashamed of western progress uh that they can't celebrate white identity etc um and why is that happening uh, seemingly in, in an increased way now? And, and how do we even have that conversation um, without, uh, in, in a kind of mature way? Because I think our natural response to that is white people are structurally privileged and we, we don't want to hear anything about, you know, how you're disadvantaged because in the face of the fact that every, a whole host of other communities are marginalized way more than you are. And so, but I, I do think there's something that needs to be unpacked there. I just don't know how you have that conversation without people laughing you out of the room. <laughs> In the next episode of Our Darkest Day, we learn more about what it means to be Muslim in New Zealand and how discrimination can come in many forms. I was never accustomed to living in Christchurch, so I moved because I was very... I, I hated the racism here. It's just a couple of weeks ago where we were talking in Arabic, me and my daughter, and one of the ladies, old couple, they uh, say uh, uh, they are soon going back to their country. 
It's like a racist uh, talking against us. My daughter will experience racism. Mm. People will be racist towards her because of the color of her skin. Wow. Um, and if I don't tell her that, when she experiences it, she will think it's her that they are treating in that way. Mm. And it is because of who she is. And I need to warn her that there are people out here, out there, who will treat her in a particular way because of the colour of her skin. Our Darkest Day is a Rising Giants Network production. It was written by myself, Ashley Stewart. It was produced by Bashar Najjar and Basil Anabtawi, with script and story consultation by Popsock Media in New Zealand. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Spotify, Angami, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now at Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products, like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details.